You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You brood of vipers. What a way to begin a sermon. When I was in college, I worked in the summers at our diocesan camp, and one of our many jobs was clearing an area around a fire pit before our weekly campfire nights. What was in the pit? Leaves, mostly, but very often copperhead snakes. Lots of them. The camp staff would take shovels and bit by bit turn over the leaves, occasionally stopping to lop off the head of one of those deadly snakes. This was the way that you earned your stripes as a member of the staff. Of course, the reason we did this should be obvious. We didn't want to start a fire and have snakes fleeing from the fire pit and coming out among the campers to bite them. It would be a scene out of the book of Numbers. We didn't want campers to step also in what they thought was a pile of leaves only to have to be taken to the emergency room for anti-venom. But today we read of a brood of vipers, of a pit with an adder in it. The Sadducees and the Pharisees come to John in the Jordan to be baptized. And he is highly suspicious of them, saying, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These two groups represent two distinctive understandings of Judaism at the time. Not the only ones, but two of them, the prominent ones. The first, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They do not believe in an afterlife. Um, They're kind of nihilistic in a sense. They do not believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They believe in simply this, power. They maintained the temple as priests. They collected the taxes. They ran the official apparatuses of the state. They even led the army. I've been to Jerusalem a couple times, and any good tour guide who takes you around the Temple Mount will show you where the excavations are of the palaces where the Sadducees lived. They lived in total opulence. They were selling sacrifices at an incredible markup. They were even changing currency at an incredible markup. They were very, very wealthy. The Pharisees are quite different. They believe in the resurrection of the dead and a reward for the righteous in the coming kingdom. They believe in the power of the law, the power of the Torah, to regulate all aspects of Jewish life. What is it that draws members of each of these groups to be baptized in the Jordan by John? Well, the best guess we can make is that they view it as pious to do so, an outward show of their piety. A true prophet has come in John the Baptist. Matthew tells us that all of Jerusalem and Judea are coming to him to be baptized. In short, John is a sensation. If you don't go out to be baptized, what kind of Jew are you? His preaching has power, and all those wanting to vie for influence among the people, especially in these two parties, come to John to be baptized. Each party believed that in the coming kingdom, they would be granted favor for their faithfulness. The Sadducees for faithfulness in the priesthood, in the administration of the temple, and the Pharisees for their faithfulness in following the law in all aspects of life. In this, we see two sides, if you will, of archetypal religion. One is cultic, the other is moral. 
One teaches you how to sacrifice, how to say the right incantations, how to worship. The other teaches you what to do, what to decide, how to act. But we see that neither is bearing fruit that befits repentance. C.S. Lewis once spoke of the, the two kinds of religions being clear and thick. Clear being the kind of moral, reasonable religion and thick being if you've read uh, Tulia Face's unget kind of religion, smelly, bloody, smoky. These two groups have become representatives of what is really and truly deadly religion. They are truly a brood of vipers. You don't want to step on their den because you will get bitten and you might just die. There is nothing wrong with worshiping rightly. Let me be clear about that. There is nothing wrong with incense. There is nothing wrong with sacrifice. There is nothing wrong with these things per se. There is nothing wrong with seeking after righteousness, seeking to live a life that is morally upright. But what we see in John's preaching is that what befits one who is oriented toward the coming Messiah is not simply a repentance that shuns immorality or one that embraces pure worship, but is rather fruitfulness. And let me say that in order for the Christian to bear fruit, our worship must be pure and our actions must be right. We cannot presume to say, oh, I go to church every Sunday, I give a tithe, I, do, I follow the right form of worship. We also can't presume to say, I live an upright life, I don't do this, I don't do that. Because repentance is not just about what you don't do. It's not even really about what you do. It is not about embracing the worship of God while evil is in the heart. It is about both and also something even greater. The truth about the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that even what they tout as their credentials before God are rotten to the core. The Sadducees are those very people who are running a racket in the temple. When Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple, he is driving out the Sadducees. They've marked up everything. They live in lavish palaces near the temple. They are quite literally selling salvation for silver. The Pharisees, on the other hand, use the law as nothing but an occasion for smugness to affirm their own superiority. And by the way, one cannot be poor and be a Pharisee. It costs money to be a Pharisee, to do things right, to live rightly. But neither looks forward to salvation. Neither hopes for everlasting life with God. What they hope for is simply a world that is only marginally better than this one. And better for whom? Better for them. And friends, if Advent is about anything, it is about hope. Not hope that things will get better for us, not some cleaned up message of prosperity, and not hope in some kind of humanistic optimism. Christians cannot live by hope that eventually our political parties will get it right and will have a better life. The hope which is proclaimed in the gospel is this, salvation, a new creation, not an improved world order, not an increase of your personal status or prosperity, but to be saved. 
John's message is that even now the axe is at the root of the tree. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had the pleasure of digging an axe into the ground where the root of a tree is? I mean, some of you are like, yeah. That's, that's like, it's not to put it this way, but manly work, right? You're, you're digging something up. It takes forever. It's hard work. But at the end, what do you have? A clean, fresh piece of ground that you can grow things in. This is all of that language in Isaiah of what? A spring coming forth from the root, from the stump of Jesse. John is calling the people to understand that God can raise up children of Abraham out of rocks. What is not happening here is that the Jewish people are being superseded. That's not the language at all. But it is a message to the, to the, to the, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That judgment will mean, and indeed must mean, an overturning of the way things are now. To be a people of hope is to be a people who are anchored in the promises of God, not promises that we will be made, not promises made to the rich or to the powerful or to the ones who get worship just right or to those who live perfectly moral lives, but primarily to the poor. Today the psalm speaks of the poor being vindicated to the poor being cared for. This is a gospel for sinners, a gospel for those who have been rejected, a gospel for those who have been marginalized, to those who have made a mess of their lives, to those who cannot possibly hope in worldly goods because time and time again they have been disappointed. Yes, the poor will be judged with righteousness and the meek given equity. This reveals the greatest problem with the brood of vipers that has come to John. If you are not a Sadducee, if you do not come from that priestly bloodline, you cannot become one. It is impossible. If you are not a Pharisee, but a sinner from birth or poor, you cannot become one. But what does God do? He calls all people to repentance and calls all people to hope, whether rich or poor, whether slave or free. Paul writes, therefore, I will praise thee among the Gentiles and sing to thy name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And further, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come. He who rises to rule the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. This is he of whom Isaiah says, a little child shall lead them. Not grown-ups. Grown-ups are out. A little child. The Sadducees and the Pharisees believe that they are very mature, that they have it all right. They love their heritage and they love their history. They love the Torah. They love the Bible. But they only love it insofar as it makes them powerful and influential. They love it only insofar as it makes them superior. Their hope has been severely and tragically misplaced. Benedict XVI once wrote that meager, misplaced hope leads us away from God. Meager, misplaced hope leads us away from God. What we see from these two people who come to be baptized is that hope and repentance go together. And who hopes for what he sees? 
To repent is to turn all of our hopes upon God, to become a people who are steadfastly committed to divine providence, unmoved in our hope for salvation in Christ. Many people think about repentance. If I can just give up this one vice that dogs me time and time again, then I'll have arrived. That's not how repentance works, actually. Christian repentance without turning to God in hope and faith doesn't work. It's nothing. When we sin, we hope that we will be granted relief from our deepest anxieties. One of my teachers, Bishop Donald Parsons, said that sometime in the 50s, he was approached by a woman after church on a Sunday, and she said to him, Father, I want you to know that I know that I'm a sinner. I've just never been a miserable one. In the prayer book, he used to say, we miserable sinners. Yes, some of you it's lost on. Forget it. She said, I've never been a miserable one. We always sin because we think that by it we'll be happy, we'll be fine, we'll be okay. We believe that we're a dollar bill away or a luxury away or an achievement away or an orgasm away from happiness and joy. And this is a lie. From the father of lies, a lie. A lie from the pit of hell. In order for the soul to be cured, and by cured, I mean simply directing its sight squarely on God and God alone, it must have hope. And to have hope means simply this, to see the love of God and that alone as the object of our happiness. The Sadducees and the Pharisees have replaced hope in God with hope in something else. Whether that's wealth or power or uprightness of life or favor or whatever it might be, they do not believe that God will fill their deepest desires. And they probably don't believe that because their deepest desires are twisted. And so they've searched the scriptures for evidence that they are God's chosen instruments. And they have engaged in the mental and exegetical gymnastics necessary to prove it. They look for confirmation in scripture and they look for affirmation of themselves in scripture. I love what Augustine says of this. If you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Ouch. Today in the college we prayed that God would grant us so to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the words of Scripture that we may embrace and ever hold fast to the truth as it's revealed to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. This brood of vipers has come to the gospel, come to the Jordan to cross it in biblical fashion, and they are intent to take on only what they want and not what God is giving. They only want what they like, only what affirms them, only what confirms them. And they mirror very clearly the serpent in the book of Genesis, who says what? Oh, you won't die. You'll be like God. Doesn't that sound good? And yet it's rotten. 
They have tempted the people of God to evil pride. They have deceived, and as a result, there is enmity between them, as it was cursed so long ago, enmity between them and the woman, who is both Eve and, as we will see later, the virgin daughter of Zion from whom the Messiah will come. There is enmity between their offspring, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and her offspring, the righteous ones of God, even Jesus Christ himself. And this is why John says to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. John's place in this is shown forth by what he wears and what he eats. He shows that he is the friend of the bridegroom who comes to usher in this new time for God's people. He wears, what does he wear? A garment of camel's hair. To us, it's like, well, that's weird. Why would he do that? But you know that camels, according to the Old Testament law, are unclean. He's wearing the product of an unclean animal. And in this, she, he shows that he is beholden to neither the customs of the Pharisees according to the law or the customs of the priests, of which he, by the way, is one, with priestly blood like no other has, by not wearing their garments. He wears the garments of the poor. He wears the garments of the unclean. He is identifying with the Gentiles, thereby proclaiming that the blessing of God to the nations through Abraham and his offspring, specifically the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is coming into the world. He wears a leather belt, a mark of courage and strength, which are altogether different from the occupation of places of power and earthly authority. We are so often led to believe that it is those who occupy power and authority that are courageous. It is not that way. The most courageous people are often found in absolute dejection, utter loss. John eats locusts, thereby eating the instrument of God's judgment of his own people in the days of Joel and his judgment of the Egyptians in the days of the Exodus. He proclaims clearly the day on which the Lord would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. He eats the instruments of judgment. And finally, and perhaps most important, he eats wild honey, signifying the sweetness of the word of God that he proclaims as a prophet. Let me say a little bit more about this. I've been recently reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. It's a wonderful book on psychology, and, and I encourage you to read it. Uh, but he speaks of how you can actually change someone's perceptions of what is good and what is disgusting based on preloading them with some kind of sweetness or beauty before they're exposed to something else. And we find that our judgments will actually change based on, uh, on these things. And in fact, this is an old standing tradition, but the Jews used to put honey on the lips of their children before they would instruct them in the Torah so that they would associate the word of God with sweetness. Do you see what's going on here? But wild honey is very different. Have you ever had wild honey? When you, almost, when you find it, you'll see bees, dead bees in it, because it's that wild. We bought some in, I bought some in Rwanda once, and it's, and it's wild stuff. 
In fact, it's not anything like the honey we have here because the honey we have here is entirely sweet and not bitter. Wild honey is both bitter and sweet. It depends on your perspective. That is also true, by the way, of the undomesticated word of God. It will not be subjected or subjugated to human desires. It will be bitter to the prideful and sweet to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that, in the end, is exactly what John proclaims. The incarnate word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Sweetness to the poor, sweetness to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and bitter to the prideful. John had leapt in the womb of his mother Elizabeth upon her meeting the mother of the Lord. He rejoiced before the ark of a new covenant because it was sweetness to him. And the words of Mary and the Magnificat pour forth at this, saying, He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their, from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The book of Proverbs says that those who are full loathe honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. I don't know if you've ever been to a steak restaurant and had a big, huge steak, and then after the meal, the waiter comes along and says, you want to see the dessert menu? And you say, are you kidding me? I'm so full, I can't even think about chocolate at this point. Sweetness is sweet to the hungry. Bitterness is bitter to the prideful. And these figures, John the Baptist and Mary and Elizabeth and Jesus himself, come into sharp focus in Advent as an image of hope for those who are hungry. They show us a way to turn our hearts in repentance while steadfastly hoping only in the sweetness of God. If you have any other hopes this morning, any other desires, they will surely be disappointed. If you come into this church to be affirmed, to be directed towards a message of self-fulfillment, the gospel has little room for that. You will find this message this morning bitter to you. The only good, the only sweetness on offer this morning, or any morning, is hope. Hope in the living God. Hope of such a quality that it brings forth the twin fruits of repentance and good works. Hope of such a quality that our minds can only be filled with a living faith. Our lives filled with the love of God and filled with the love of neighbor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.